before we actually get stuck into the, the PowerPoint that I've prepared, um, as a philosopher, uh, coming uh, to this qu question from a sort of philosophy angle, I want to say that what you think about the, the truth of the claims of the things that are said about Jesus in the Bible will depend upon two different things. One thing is what we're going to look at this evening, that is uh, asking good uh, standard historical questions about the historical reliability of that witness, of that testimony to those historical events recorded in this particular set of literature. But the other thing that will affect what you make of it are the various um, philosophical beliefs that you bring to thinking about the historical texts. So, for example, if you have the philosophical belief that there isn't a God or that miracles can't happen, uh, then you're obviously going to... Uh, when you read the New Testament saying, you know, God did this miracle you're going to be very, very sceptical about that claim, aren't you? And it would take a lot of historical evidence to convince you that a particular miracle like the resurrection of Jesus had actually happened. Whereas if you were um, agnostic about the existence of God, if you were someone who said, well, I'm not sure that there isn't a God, I'm not sure that there is, maybe there is, maybe there isn't, then when you saw a historical document make a claim that a particular miracle happened or so on, um, you'd still want to be looking for evidence. But perhaps you would need less historical evidence to convince you that a miracle had happened because you're not beginning by assuming that they can't. You think, well, maybe they can. The question is, in, did, did this particular claim of a miracle actually happen or not? What's the evidence? If you came to the text already believing that there is a God who could work miracles, again, it would take perhaps uh, less historical evidence to convince you, although I want to emphasize you'd still want to be asking the standard kind of historical questions that we're looking at tonight. So I think I wanted to just plug that background and say the beliefs that you bring to analyzing the data will have a big effect on how you analyse it, how much you're prepared to trust what the historical evidence points to. So, let's just focus though on the question of the historical evidence and perhaps in the Q&A time some of those sort of background philosophical issues will creep into our discussion as well. I'd suggest that when you're looking at any piece of historical reporting historical testimony, there's a, a, a chain of kind of four links in a chain of testimony that is, as you were, linking you as a modern reader to the claimed historical event in the past. Uh, and those links I've set out here. There is the first link between the reported event and the source, the witness of that event the person who's claiming to have uh, seen it or heard it. The second link is between that source and them writing down a report to say that they had seen or heard this event. The third link is then between them originally writing down what they originally wrote about what they saw or heard. That's technically called the autograph. Uh, in this field, 
and the surviving copies of that text that we have today. Because as with all ancient history, uh, very rare for us to have the original document that was the thing that was originally written by the person. What we have are the copies that were made by hand of what they wrote. And the fourth link is the, the link between the autograph, what was originally written, and the text that we can reconstruct and translate and read in our hand today. So you see how each of those links has to be there for good information to get from the past to us in the present. And you want to be asking, are or is there something filling each of these gaps, as it were, each of these links, and is it strong? Is there a good reason to trust it in each of those links? So I'm going to structure my talk looking at each of those links in turn. Uh, let me also say that um, although we've got time for questions afterwards, I'm aware um, that I'm speaking to people in your second language for a lot of you, and that this is an area where there's sometimes technical terminology that's specific to the area. So if I use some technical language or some philosophical language that just kind of trips off my tongue and you're going, huh? What? What? Do, you know, stick a hand up or, or nudge someone else to stick a hand up for you uh, and just get me to clarify what I mean because I want to make sure that we, we all follow through uh, these steps because I think it's, it's very important. So a New Testament uh, scholar called uh, Timothy Jones says this about that first link uh, talking about the Gospels, the accounts of Jesus' life in our Bibles no one can be certain who wrote these books still the best evidence that we possess suggests that the sources of the four Gospels were a tax collector called Matthew Gospel of Matthew Simon Peter's translator Mark, Simon Peter was one of Jesus' disciples, and he had a guy who worked with him called Mark, Mark's Gospel. The physician, the doctor, Luke, and a fisherman named John. And John was also one of Jesus' disciples. There are, and don't get these confused with the four links, there are four kind of overlapping stages at work here. The, the historical Jesus lived about, it's hard to be absolutely precise about this, but about 6 BC, because we got the dating calendar wrong when we first tried to work it out, so it ends up being born before he was meant to be born, according to the medieval calendar. So 6 BC to about 33 AD. That's the events that we're talking about themselves. Then there's a period of what's called oral history, when the teachings of Jesus, the stories about Jesus, were preserved mainly by oral memory uh, of eyewitnesses and of the community that formed around Jesus. Stage three, which overlaps, particularly these two overlap, I think, the period of written sources, not full-fledged gospels, but bits of gospel, as it were. Um, sources, and they might be some of these sources written, that contained a collection of sayings from Jesus or, or teachings of Jesus or uh, a particular account of his death and resurrection. 
And then there's this stage where all of that feeds into the writing of the actual Gospels that we have. So those Gospels draw upon earlier written accounts and people's memories of what went on during the historical period. Uh, Luke, the Dr. Luke, in the beginning of his Gospel, actually mentions all those kinds of stages, all the kind of things that he's drawing on to compose his Gospel. And he says, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who, from the first, from the events, were eyewitnesses, and servants of the word, people who saw the event and remembered them and and used to tell the the story of that event to the community. With this in mind, since I myself has carefully investigated everything from the beginning, he's saying I'm going to write a a kind of standard kind of uh, Greek type of history here, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. And Theophilus uh, was probably the patron um, who paid for his book to be copied enough to be distributed. So he mentions these various sources and different witnesses that he's investigated to pull together the information to write his account. Now this is a bit of a messy diagram. But uh, stick with me and focus on some different areas of this. Here are the, the four Gospels and the dates that if you pushed me, I would say, from my reading uh, of the data, I think they were finished being written by. Uh, so Mark's Gospel, and I'd actually say that was written by AD 50. Remember, Jesus died in 33. AD 50, I think, Mark. Uh, Matthew and Luke in the early 60s and then John's Gospel was the last the latest Gospel to be written um, and say 85 but it could be 95 uh, we really don't know Uh, Mark, Matthew and Luke are called together the synoptic Gospels because uh, Luke and Matthew use a lot of the, 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 the text of Mark in their own Gospels they kind of do a lot of quoting from Mark, as it were, whereas John doesn't. He seems to be a, a, a literarily uh, independent uh, source of information about the, the life of Jesus. Now, up here, I'm talking about the different sources that these Gospels drew on, and those sources, of course, predate those Gospels. And there are usually five different sources that scholars talk about behind the New Testament Gospels. Um, So these sources date from about 30 to 60 AD. Um, Material called Q, from a, a German word for source, that is shared in common by Luke and Matthew. You see the arrows going from there. Material that's a source that's that's particular to Matthew, called M, for obvious reasons. A source that's particular to Luke, that's called, guess what, L. Fancy names these scholars give things. And uh, perhaps uh, a a passion source, that's a story about Jesus' death and resurrection uh, that predates Mark, that goes in at the end of Mark's Gospel. And then John, some scholars think, he has earlier sources as well. This is a fascinating book called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses by a scholar at St. Andrews University called Richard Bockham. 
and he uh, looks at the way that the Gospels draw upon eyewitness testimony and incorporate that and give signs in terms of the way that ancient history was written that they are using those kind of eyewitness sources. He says many of these named characters in the text, sort of characters that are just mentioned in the context of a particular story, these named characters were eyewitnesses who not only originated the traditions to which their names were attached, but also continued to tell these stories as the guarantors, the authority of guarantors of their traditions. Remember, in first century Palestine, it's what's called a, an oral culture, an oral sto- storytelling culture. People didn't tend to write things down so much as remember them and repeat those stories And uh, if you wanted to know the particular story, you went to the particular person who was kind of the keeper of that story, usually because, well, they were the person that that was on the ground at the time. That's an obvious kind of rule to follow, and that seems to be what they were doing. So it's not so much that the Gospels are based on what's called oral traditions... Um, that is sort of oral memory that goes beyond a generation, but what, what scholars call oral history, that we're still, when we're looking at the Gospels, drawing on information from people who were alive at the time that the events happened and were still alive when they were being drawn on the sources for writing the Gospels. Um, and I've got a quote here from another couple of scholars saying that given the context of this oral storytelling culture, and the way that people in that culture memorized things and so on. Whoever um, is the writer of the Gospels, in a sense, that's not the most important issue. The issue is that the, the sources, whoever they were, and probably some of these named people that we get in the Gospels, were eyewitnesses to what they're talking about. Uh, that really makes the same point. I'm just going to skip over that. So that's the link between the events happening and sort of going through the sources to the writing of the Gospels that we've got. On the second link, a scholar called William Craig says that all historians agree that the Gospels were written down and circulated within the first generation after the events they're talking about. I gave you the dates that I would plump for. This is an area where there's a lot of disagreement. Uh, But we can say that they were all written within one generation of the events. And the rough consensus of the the scholarly community seems to be that they were written sometime between 60 and 90 AD, although both earlier and later dates have been proposed. Here's a a little chart. Um, Often people will divide scholars into what they call conservative and liberal scholars. Uh, And the conservative scholars tend to include more Christians than the liberal scholars camp does. Um, You could almost translate that as scholars who are Christians and scholars who aren't, but it's not that simple. Um, But you see I've given here a listing of the kind of range of dates that scholars in those two camps would give. But you can see that whatever camp of scholarship people come from, there is an agreement here. The later dates proposed for these four Gospels, they're all within the first century, within a generation of the events. This is a very influential argument about the dating, uh, that the book of Acts, which is actually the sequel to the book of Luke and written by the same person, it's a story about the history of the early church, 
It ends uh, with a, a very important guy called Paul in prison about AD 62. And he's in prison in Rome for preaching the gospel. And nothing is said in Acts about Paul's trial or the martyrdom of James, the brother of Jesus, which happened in AD 62. Or the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem when the Romans put down a rebellion in AD 70. Then these, for the church and for any uh, Jew, were huge uh, events about really significant things. And the fact that none of them are mentioned and the, the, the story in Acts just kind of stops before any of these things are mentioned has uh, given a lot of scholars to think that Acts was probably written before those events happened. And if so, well, of course, Luke's Gospel shouldn't be dated later than its sequel. Uh, And given that uh, we think Luke was written after Matthew was written, and that Matthew was written after Mark, because both Luke and Mark quote from Matthew, they would have to be earlier still. So we have some reason from this to, to think that all those, those three synoptic Gospels must have been written within 30 years of Jesus' death. Looking at the, the manuscript evidence we've got, there's a few uh, scraps of manuscript here and there that might kind of suggest the same kind of thing as well. Um, a scholar called Michael Green says, we've got a small fragment of Mark's Gospel, chapter 6, found among the Dead Sea Scrolls. Some of you might have heard about this, find of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, which was mainly bits of Old Testament and so on, in a, in a pot in a cave in the desert in Israel, hidden in the caves uh, when the Romans were attacking this rebellion in AD 66. And we've got fragments of Matthew chapter 26 at a college in Oxford, uh, which looks on grounds to do with the writing style at the time and things, uh, to have been written before AD 70, which was this big historical uh, event as well. And that's disputed by some. So there's some what's called textual evidence to think that if we've got bits of these gospels from those dates, the gospels, those probably aren't the original copies, so they must have been earlier than than the dating of even those fragments. We're now halfway through. Uh, We've got this third link. This is a guy called Anthony Flew. Um, For many years, he was a very famous British philosopher who was an atheist. And a number of years ago now, he kind of shocked everybody by changing his mind on that and said that he actually he'd been thinking about it more and new evidence had come in. And he now thought there was a God, but he still didn't believe in any revelation claim. So he came to believe in God, but he wasn't a Christian or a Jew or a Muslim or anything like that. Um, But this is a quote from him when he was still an atheist, and he said during a debate um, that the textual authority, the earliness, the number of manuscripts for most of the Christian documents is unusually great. That's very good authority for the accuracy of the text that's provided in translation in the New Testament. Because what he's talking about in this, is, in this link is the accuracy of the text that we can get out of the number, the earliness of the manuscript copies of what was originally written. Um, the average time span, if you look at lots of ancient literature and history and so on, the average time span between the original writing of a document and the early, earliest copy that we have of things is on average a thousand years between the the autograph and our earliest copy, on average, a thousand years. The New Testament has 
several fragments within a generation, whole books within a hundred years, most of the New Testament within 200 years, the entire New Testament within 250 years of the date of its original writing. Um, you can compare specifically with things like um, the writings of Pliny the Younger um, and our copy, earliest copy of what he wrote. There's a 750-year gap um, between uh, Homer the Odyssey, the Iliad and so on, are our earliest copy of those texts, 500 years at least. The closest comparison in ancient literature is the works of uh, the Roman poet Virgil. Between his writing and our earliest copies of what he wrote lies 300 years. Between the Gospels being written and our complete copies, not even talking about bits of books, scraps here and there, our complete copies, 250 to 300 years at most put it on a graph like this. So here are various ancient texts and that's the, the closest comparison. This is the number of years between what was originally written and when we've got our earliest copy. For the New Testament it beats everything and we've got scraps like those that we were just mentioning from Michael Green very very early. Um, I'll give you some pictures of some of the, the texts that we've got. So we're talking about complete copies of the Gospels from AD 325 to 50, various uh, codexes, that's Latin for book, and this is a picture of Codex Sinaiticus. Um, we've got several different independent copies uh, of the text from, from that date. But we've got major portions of all four Gospels and the Book of Acts and so on from about 250, AD 250, um, not very long after the writing down here, this is the Chester Beatty papyrus, named after the guy who found it. Uh, several pages of Luke and John, uh, the Bodmer papyri from AD 200. Um, and then we're into little scraps, sort of bits of verses here and there. This is a bit of John's Gospel, dated to ooh, right around AD 120 or so. Um, and we mentioned some earlier fragments as well. So here we are now on to our final link between the events and us knowing about them. Uh, how sure can we be about reconstructing from the copies that we've got the original text of what was written about the original events? A scholar on this field called Mark D. Roberts, he says, the abundance of manuscripts and the antiquity, that's the, the age of the manuscripts, when run through the mill of textual cr critical methodology, when we do the kind of rules of scientific study of these things, allows us to know with a very high level of probability what the evangelists, the writers of the Gospels, and the other New Testament authors of the letters and so on wrote. And scholars, several different scholars, have actually calculated the probability of the purity of the text given the amount of manuscripts that we've got of what we can reconstruct and they say we're in the range of 98% sure that the text that we reconstruct now accurately reflects the text as it was originally written. So Robert says we can have confidence that the, the critical Greek texts of Matthew, Mark, Luke and John represent to a very high degree of probability what the autographs, the original writings actually contained. Again, let me give you some graphs on this because it very, puts it very starkly uh, when you put it visually. Here's again a, a range of other ancient literature and the closest uh, analogy, which is in this case the works of Homer, uh, 
And this is not looking at how long after the event do we have a copy, but rather how many copies do we have after the event. Because the more copies that we have in more different languages and so on, the easier it becomes to use that as evidence to kind of reconstruct the original. It's a bit like doing an evolutionary tree by analysing the genetics of different related families of the same species, to draw an analogy. Um, so, uh, Homer's the closest. We've got about 643 different copies. For the New Testament... We've got 24,633 in a range of different languages. But let's just look at the Greek, just at the Greek, which would be the, the earliest language that it, a lot of it would have been written in. Well, again, closest 643 for Homer, just the Greek New Testament copies, we have about 5,700. So, basically, on the rules of textual criticism, if you want to say, I'm not going to trust that the text of what we have in our Bibles today accurately reflects the text that was originally written, you'd have to say the same thing about the whole of ancient history and literature. Because on the same tests applied to those two sets of texts, the New Testament text far outstrips the rest of ancient literature put together in terms of the, the resources that we have for doing that textual criticism upon. As Geisler and Turek say, there's nothing from ancient world that comes even close in terms of manuscript support for the New Testament. Most other ancient works survive in fewer than a dozen manuscripts. Yet few historians question the historicity of the events those works describe. So, to, to kind of sum up and bring us back a little bit full circle as well, because towards the end of this quote from R.T. France, who was a New Testament scholar, he starts talking about the philosophical aspects of thinking about this again. He says, at the level of their literary and historical character, so the literary character would be links three and four, and the historical character links one and two, basically. History and literary. We've got good reason to take the Gospels seriously. Many ancient historians would count themselves fortunate to have four such responsible accounts written within a generation or two of the events and preserved in such a wealth of manuscript evidence. Here's where the philosophy starts coming in. Beyond that point, the decision as to how far a scholar is willing to accept the record they offer, how likely you are to, to think that what the Gospels say happened really did happen, is likely to be influenced more by their openness to a supernaturalistic worldview. That is, whether or not they believe that there might be a God, that miracles could happen in, in principle than by strictly historical considerations. Because if you're looking at just the strictly historical considerations, the New Testament is very, very well evidenced in comparison with the rest of ancient history, which we don't really want to chuck out the window. So that's what I have to say on those four different links. 
and I really look forward to some of the questions that are going to come back uh, in this direction. Thank you very much. How do we know they, the, the writers of the Bible faithfully wrote down what they saw in the first place? Yeah, how do we know that they were reliable chaps and not trying to make up a story, make up a story for someone to deceive people? Um, that's an excellent question. Very good one to ask about. Slightly answer the question. Yeah. Why did they write it so late as well? So right. Like 30 years Okay. Uh, as to the first question, there's, I think, a, a number of reasons that we can look at to be confident that the writers of these uh, accounts of Jesus' life weren't just making stuff up or uh, trying to uh, do something for their own gain by uh, making a story up that would convince people or something like this. So that it's not all a conspiracy. Um, for reasons such as... Well, I think a very big one is the fact that they were prepared to die, to be murdered by the authorities around them for sticking to the story that they told. Uh, if you're going to make up a story for some selfish reason in order to deceive people, presumably to get something out of doing it, it seems very unlikely to me that you would continue sticking by your story and saying, yes, no, it really was true, this really did happen, when you're being threatened with death and you're seeing people who, who stick by that story being killed by the authorities. So the fact that we know that people like Paul, uh, James, uh, Peter, a guy called Stephen who's mentioned in Acts, were martyred, for what they claimed shows, I think, the sincerity of what they were saying. And I want to be very careful here. I'm not claiming that a, a, a willingness to die for some religious idea shows that that religious idea is true. You only have to point to a Muslim suicide bomber to dispel that idea. But although I think the Muslim suicide bomber's religious views are wrong, the fact that he is prepared to kill himself and other people, unfortunately, for that idea, does show that however misguided I might think he is, he is sincere about his ideas. He really believes it because he's prepared to die for it. It doesn't show that it's true, but it shows that he really believes it's true. Okay, so he's sincere. It's not just a lie that he's made up. People don't die like that for that kind of, of lie um, and similarly the New Testament writers were prepared not to kill other people but to be killed themselves to be martyred not, not, not by, by trying to kill other people who didn't agree with them but by letting people who didn't agree with them kill them, the gospel writers the, the disciples of Jesus which shows not necessarily that their beliefs were true but I think it does show that they were sincere that they weren't lying about it, they weren't just making up a story for some for some reason. Thank you. We have a better move to a different group. One in there. Do you have a question? You can skip if you want. Yeah. So, just like you mentioned, uh, if a person was killed, 
and he hold his opinion. He held his so uh, we can trust uh, his theory or his opinion is likely true. Is well, no, I'm saying that we can trust that his opinion is not a lie. Mm-hmm. That it's not something that he believes is false, mm-hmm. but is telling us is true. Because he's prepared to die for making that claim. It doesn't show that the claim is true. But it does, it does speak to it, though, in, in, in this way. The, the Muslim suicide bomber, or the guy who flew the planes into the Twin Towers, that m- may show that they're, they're sincere. They're not lying about these claims that they make about their religious beliefs. But we would all think that those, those beliefs are wrong. Okay. But those guys, they're not in, a, 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 in the kind of p- same position as the early disciples with respect to the things that they were claiming. Because someone who's uh, today prepared to die for a religious belief and say, I think this is true and so I'm prepared to die for it, well, that shows they're sincere. But how do they know that it's true? That's, that's the question. Does it tell us anything about the truth of what they're saying? Well, you know, um, they're not in a position to know the truth uh, in the way that one of these disciples of Jesus was in a position to know the truth of the claims that they were making. Because they were on the ground at the time. They lived beside Jesus. They claimed to have seen him do certain things, say certain things. They claimed to have met him risen from the, from the dead. And that was the main thing that got them in trouble, saying that we met Jesus risen from the dead. And they were prepared to die for that claim. And if that claim was not true, they would have been in a very good position to know that that wasn't true. Because <laughs> they were there on the ground. They could go to the tomb and say, well, is there still a body in it or not? And they claimed that we went to the tomb and there wasn't a body in it. Uh, they claimed to have been there in, in the room when Jesus appeared to them, raised from the dead, to have seen him and touched him and talked with him and had a meal with him and, uh, and, and in different places and circumstances over a long period of time and so on. Um, so they're making a truth claim about something that they're claiming to have witnessed themselves and to have been in the ideal position to know about by experiencing it. And it's that claim that they die for. So I think you could say, in a sense, that not only does the fact that they're willing to die for it show that they're at least sincere, they're not lying about those claims, but maybe it does say something about the the actual trustworthiness of those claims, because they're made by people who were in a position to know what they were talking about, unlike someone who's historically removed from the things that they're dying for. The WTC bombers, we don't even know who is the real bombers. We don't even know if it's Muslim bombers or is it some conspiracies. Please make that clarification. That's all. Okay, so it's an issue of whether those bombers were indeed Muslims, yes. and there is some doubt in your mind as to whether that's true. Yes. Um, fine, that, that that would be a whole other discussion on a whole different topic. Um, for, 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 the, for the purposes of, of, of my argument, you can just take what I said as an illustration of, given that they were, I, I'm drawing a comparison um, uh, on the assumption that they were, and the, the argument would still go through 
um, irrespective of the actual facts in that case, because I'm just drawing a, a distinction between people who die for something that they're in a position to know by experience and people who die for something that they weren't in a position to know by experience. Pick whatever example you prefer. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, the question in our group um, it's kind of two slightly related things. One was about um, uh, you, you've got. We mentioned there's quite a lot of copies of the of the New Testament. Yeah. Um, we imagine this big family tree. Mm. Where you start with the original, and you get some copies made, and they get copies made of that, and you get some copies made of that. Yeah. You wondered how close to the original did we have? Right. Yes. Yeah, so there's there's two separate questions. There's two different links that you're talking about there. Um, one is um, the gap or the link between the original thing that was written by the person and the surviving copies that we have. How, how close are the copies in time to what was originally written? And the other question is in here is, is how many different copies in this kind of family tree of copies have we got? because the more different copies the better it is for reconstructing the original so absolutely those are two separate questions flicking through here so this graph is about the gap between the original thing that was written and how much time goes by before we've got copies of it at all uh, and in terms of complete copies that's this bar here uh, and uh, as it says uh, here, it's about 250 to 300 years. That's that, that gap. But in comparison with the rest of ancient literature and history, as this kind of graph shows, um, that's relatively close on the heels of the actual event. So if you were thinking, well, gosh, that's a really, that's such a big gap that I don't think I can trust what's said like that this reflects the original because that's such a, a long time you'd certainly have to say the same thing about all of the other texts that we have because our copies of those come from on, as I say, on average a thousand years after the original thing was written and yet historians think that we can with some degree of reliability still reconstruct ancient history uh, you know there are whole university departments whose job it is to do that um, in terms of the, the other question, the number of manuscript question, that's this, this graph. And again, for the New Testament, the numbers are much, much greater than all the rest of the examples on here put together, even if you only look at the, the copies that are written in Greek. Because one of the great things about the textual criticism of the Gospel is as the, 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 these bits of writing move out from Jerusalem and Rome, which were probably the two places where they were originally written, moves out of that into the, the surrounding sort of geography, people start translating them into their language, of course. So we starts off in Greek, but we, ha we have copies in, in Syriac and Latin and, uh, and so on. So we, we can compare the translations, you know, or from the same time, but in different languages. And that, again, helps, given our knowledge of those languages, to reconstruct what was most likely the original word in the Greek. But as I say, we've got 5,700-odd copies in Greek, Anyway, 
to look at, which on, on its own outstrips the rest of these examples. Thank you for clarifying that. Any more questions? Yeah, quite a simple question. If the early disciples were fishermen, how did they manage to write down the Gospels if they were fishermen? Yep, excellent question. Um, There was a certain degree of literacy in the culture, but it was fairly low. Um, So it is a worthwhile question uh, asking. It was mainly an oral culture, and there was less emphasis on writing things down. So it's a good question. Um, Matthew, who wrote Matthew's Gospel, probably, uh, was a tax collector. He was a Jew working for the Roman authorities in the tax taxation system, probably at some sort of toll booth on a crossing point from one region to another. Um, so it's quite likely that he would have been literate. And we even know, for example, that, that tax collectors had their own system of shorthand, like secretaries used to use before we invented the dictaphone. Um, uh, for, for their business purposes, as it were. Um, and quite a few scholars even think that that cue source that, that lies behind Matthew's Gospel might actually have been a written source compiled by Matthew himself on the ground at the time, so that he recorded Jesus' teaching on the ground when it was happening in shorthand, uh, or uh, maybe then later made a, an Aramaic copy, and then maybe later that got translated and incorporated into his bigger gospel. So we've got some reasons for thinking that Matthew, for example, would have been able to write. Uh, when you're looking at the gospel of, of Mark, it's the teaching of Peter the disciple and Mark who accompanied Peter when he went to to Rome to set up churches there and do teaching there he acted as uh, Peter's translator and would have uh, uh, I've done a a talk when I was last in uh, in Norway some time ago they asked me to do a talk to a youth group and they had a a Norwegian guy from the university there uh, acting as my translator it made everything take twice as long as normal it was fascinating because I would try and say something that I thought was short enough to remember Blah, 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 blah. Uh, and then my Norwegian colleague in Norwegian, which I don't know, would say something in Norwegian, which I would trust would represent what I had said. This guy saying the same thing in his language. And it would go on like that. Um, so um, perhaps Mark was kind of doing that, and doing it so often as Peter preached that he began to memorise the stories uh, himself. Uh, and when you look into the history, it's very interesting. Look at when, when Peter was in Rome and when he went back to Jerusalem for certain meetings with other disciples and so on. And maybe Mark stayed behind and all the people in Rome said, oh, we've lost Peter. We, we've no longer got the, the eyewitness telling his stories to us. But Mark, you've been translating for him and, and helping him do the, do the ministry. Could you write that down for us so that we don't lose this memory now that we've lost Peter maybe he'll you know never get back here and so on um, so it was P- Peter's memories and if you read Mark's gospel it's quite short very quick to read you'll notice that Peter is the character who kind of appears at the beginning in the middle crucially at the end and there's quite a lot of incidents that are reported where it's only a couple of Jesus's disciples there one of whom is Peter and as Bochum was talking about the, when a name appears in a story it's quite an indication that that story maybe came from one of those people who's named in the story. And so there's, there's indications just from reading the text itself to think that it was Peter's 
memories that were lying behind what Mark was recording. Um, so uh, that's uh, Matthew and Mark. We've got uh, Luke and John. Luke was uh, a doctor, medical doctor. Um, he was a Greek guy and he's uh, obviously quite an educated chap uh, the beginning of his gospel what we read out about him looking at the sources and so on is in classical Greek where the rest of it's in more kind of street language Greek as it were but he starts off in, in sort of the same kind of way that classical history texts start off with something dedicating to the person who's paying for the book and saying I'm going to do this kind of study and setting it out so it seems that he was quite an educated guy for his time John well Maybe he was one of the guys at the time, one of the few people who were literate, or maybe there are some signs that John, John's memories are behind John's gospel, and maybe he wrote quite a lot of it, or maybe he dictated it. Um, there's a very interesting bit at the end where it talks about uh, John uh, seeing the crucifixion of Jesus happening, and he gives an eyewitness account of when the spear goes in his side, that blood and water comes out and it's kind of an odd thing that he records and we now know through modern sort of scientific medical understanding that that probably indicates that Jesus's um, red blood cells were separating from the serum of the blood so that you get a separation of, of, of red and what looks like water but John wouldn't have known that so it probably is an eyewitness detail and it says in the text you know the one who saw this um, uh, is, is testifying you know kind of swearing that uh, yes I really saw this and we know that what he says is true says the text and you suddenly think hang on a minute who's, who's this we that suddenly appeared at the end of this text so maybe um, that was kind of his scribes or the, the peop- his disciples who were um, helping him write the text as, as Mark kind of helped Peter in, in a sense write his gospel but you know um, any answer along those lines, again, it, it's slightly speculative because I just can't get in my TARDIS, my time machine, and go back and ask them. Um, so for a lot of this, it is what's the most plausible kind of historical explanation that we can come up to given the, the clues that we've got. But then that's what all ancient history is like. And the, the only claim that I'm um, wanting to kind of reinforce tonight is that when you ask the same kind of historical questions of the Bible, of the New Testament, that you would ask of any bit of ancient history or literature, the Bible comes out very well from those standard kind of tests. Um, And on purely historical grounds, you've got as much, if not more, reason to trust what's in there, that it's accurately reported, and that we've got what was written, as you do for any other bit of ancient history. Okay, we'd we'd better finish there for tonight. I'll stay around for a while, so. Yeah, very, very good time. That's quite a good one. How old was Jesus when he died? Because I always thought he was 43. And you said he was from BC. Yes, and again, it's slightly speculative. We're, We're working out the date of his birth because we know that he was born before Herod the king at the time died and we know from independent sources that Herod died in what we would call 4 BC and there's some other indications to do with 
theories, uh, astronomical theories about what the star of Bethlehem might have been, this conjunction of, of Saturn with various planets that the astrologers from the East, the Magi, might have thought were symbolically significant. That kind of ties in with the, the birth narratives and gives us some data to hang a date on, but it's, it's all a bit speculative. But he must have been born before 4 BC because we know that he, he was born before Herod died, and we know that independently from other sources that he died in 4 BC. It was the medieval monk who first calculated our calendar to divide it in between before Jesus came on the scene and after. BC, before Christ, AD, Latin Anno Domini, the year of our Lord, the year that Jesus came, and that monk got his calculations wrong, basically. Um, you know, it was probably to do with the sources that he had, and the Romans kept changing the calendar, and it's all a bit kind of technical and everything. So, at least before 4 BC, and then there's a, a bit of a dispute over the date of Jesus' death, but we know from the Gospel that it was around the Jewish festival of Passover, uh, and sort of what day he was crucified on and so on and we can work out again from running back the kind of astronomy calculations that that had to have been either in AD 30 or AD 33 for the timings to work out and I think the majority of scholars would say 33 but a significant number would say 30 so you get a range of dates for how old Jesus was when he died from sort of between 39 uh, and calculate back you know I don't do the maths here in my head but um that's why there's, there's a bit of disputing and a bit of vagueness over them. Um, the most we can do, really do is put some sort of bookmarks and say around about here and here. Very short question. Mm. Uh, how would you? So, given the talk, how 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 would you like tell people to to look about that? How how would it affect our lives if if it was true? How would it affect our lives if it were true? humongously I mean it would be the most it would be the most important thing to know about and to engage your life in if it were true um, there's really two questions here do you think it's true do you believe that these claims that are given to us by these documents are true that Jesus was a real historical figure who really claimed to be the son of God the Jewish Messiah claimed to have equality with divinity uh, did miracles that back that up particularly dying and coming back to life again to show us what God was going to do with the whole of creation at the end of history uh, to show us that God loved us and wanted to offer us a relationship on the basis of him forgiving us and us just saying please forgive me thank you very much for forgiving me and wanting to know me that we don't have to um, kind of do enough to earn our place in God's affections that, uh, that, that being in relationship with God that can start now and continue eternally is not something that we have to uh, sort of uh, earn up enough holy points to buy, collect enough uh, sort of uh, bottle tops in order to send off for the special offer, be good enough. The whole thing, according to Jesus, is based on our realisation that we're not good enough and we never can be good enough unless God freely just forgives us and enters into a relationship with us whereby he can start helping us to become better in a relationship that eventually in, in what Christians call heaven, the new heavens and the new earth, will have an eternal existence in love with the greatest being, the most beautiful, greatest possible being in reality, God, 
and uh, on the basis of that love, a loving relationship with other people. I mean, that was Jesus' greatest commandment, to love God with everything you are and love your neighbor as yourself. Um, that's to live in the kingdom of God, is to live out of that forgiving, loving relationship with God and to let that impact and transform you and the way you are in the world and the way you are towards other people and so on. Um, now, if you thought that that was true, I mean, that's just gobsmacking, isn't it? That's just amazing. But you could take one or two attitudes towards it. It's, it's almost as if Jesus is saying, you know, I'm God and I'm proposing a spiritual marriage to you. I love you and I want to get married to you. This is a bit of a difficult ana- analogy for the guys in the room. Um, in the New Testament it talks about the, cr- the, the church, all Christians, being the bride of Christ together. Um, it's a spiritual analogy, it's a metaphor. But anyway, it's like someone saying they want to marry you. First question is, do you believe that they, that they really do? That that's true? That they're sincere about that? That they're willing to marry you? That they want to? Despite the fact that they know you really well? You know, good grief. Um, the second question is, what are you going to do about it? Because you can either say, oh, yes, please, that would be great, and follow through, or you could say, no, thank you. Not interested. You know? Uh, and you wouldn't be able to sit on the fence forever on this one. Um, so, given that you thought it was true, you'd then face a stupendous uh, thing of, of, well, what am I going to, how am I going to respond to this offer of love and forgiveness and relationship and eternal life and all that from God? Am I going to respond positively? or negatively and almost the most amazing thing about this offer is that God says it's, your, it's up to you I, I want you to freely be in relationship with me even though I am the perfect being that created you I'm God you're the creation you're the creature but I really love you I want a genuine relationship with you that means it's got to be your choice and in the end if you want to reject my offer reject my love I'll let you I will suffer that rejection because that's the only way to be open to a genuine loving relationship you could almost think and again this might be no more than an analogy but Jesus dying on the cross is kind of God you know, putting out his arms towards you and saying I will suffer the fact that you're rejecting me, that you sin, that you do things that are wrong, that you haven't positively responded to me, that you don't live out the way that I've designed you and intended you to live in loving relationship with me. I'm going to suffer all of that, suffer your sin, so that I can try and convince you that I'm really serious about a genuine loving relationship with you. And what are you going to do about it? I mean, it's up, it's up to you. There's, there's no argument there. There's an argument that it's true. There are arguments that, that would show you that if that's true, that would be a good thing, a wonderful thing. But their argument stops and personal decision begins.